Welcome to the Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast. Our host, Oscar Endermo, will together with guests share proven, tested strategies for improving your life and business. At the end of each episode, you will learn how you can use technology to implement those strategies into your daily life. We want to help you bridge the gap from inspiration to implementation. Welcome to another episode of the Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast. In this episode, I speak to a rock star. And it's not any rock star, it's the rock star of business education, Professor Eddie Obang. And he's a thinker, innovator, Yeah, he's, he wears a lot of hats, he's a super interesting guy. Uh, in January, I was uh, researching for my new keynotes about how you can future-proof yourself, where I include a lot of technologies. And in the research process, I found Professor Eddie's TED talk, and he shares this concept that we're the, t- the speed of, of change is just too fast for us to keep up with. And this was a TED talk he gave 11 years ago. So uh, I reached out to Eddie and uh, his uh, his team and managed to get an interview with him, and we had a super interesting conversation. I'm sure you'll find this uh, fun, interesting, thought-provoking, because Professor Eddie, he really delivers, and uh, yeah, it was super fun to, to talk to him, actually. This is one of those episodes that, I, personally, I will listen to many times over, because we had fun, and also a lot of lessons, a lot of learnings. So, yeah, here we go, Eddie and I. Professor Eddie, welcome to the Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast. Uh, Hello, Oscar. I'm so <laughs> delighted to be here. Yes. I, I, I normally start with this question. I used to live in Dubai. Have you been to Dubai? I have been to Dubai many times. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of nice sky bars. There's no nice sky bar in Stockholm. So I still use this Dubai question. So <laughs> you and me, we're going to sky bar, 63rd floor. Yeah. And there's a third guy in the lift. And so he asked, Eddie, what do you, what do, you do? What I, would you I, tell him? My normal answer to that question is as little as possible. <laughs> uh, the, the second answer is I explained that I'm an educator. I'm a business educator. I educate the people in business and I educate the businesses. Mm, okay. And to do that, you have to bring ideas. You have to let them put them into practice. You have to provide them with inspiration and motivation and really make sense of the context they work in. Okay, excellent. So now we're in the top. Top. We're going to the bar and I'm gonna enjoy a drink. So, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I got this. I found this quote: Duke Corporate Education. They said that Eddie Obang is the rock star of business education. <laughs> and the, then I found your CV, and it's in your CV. It said that you started with a PhD in biochemical engineering. Correct. So I'm curious, the background. How do you go from a PhD in biochemical engineering to the rock star of business education? Okay, so um, so I studied uh, chemical and biochemical engineering at university because the reason I did it was I wanted something which would be broad so that I could really understand. And then while I was doing the PhD in, um, in uh, biotechnology, I was going to night school to study economics <laughs> ah, okay. because I wanted to understand how things came together. Uh, and I, I started, I left and I joined a company called Shell uh, and I worked on um, technology, mostly biological technology for cleaning up the North Sea gases and things like that, worked on patents. And then I worked for consultancy doing energy uh, saving. So the, um, the one of my designs won an award because we saved like 90% of the energy used by a, a vegetable oil refinery, for example. And then I went from there to a place called Ashridge Business School. Um, and the reason I went there is because I started an MBA and they sent us to Ashridge for a weekend. And I thought, this is a nice place. I like to work here. Then they advertised. So I went to join them. So I went to Ashridge and I started teaching. I was a very junior researcher and um, uh, I was very stupid. So every time they asked me to do something, I would do it. and I wouldn't ask for more money. So within three years, I was on the executive board at the same time as the business started to go bankrupt. So I got involved in the turnaround, business schools aren't supposed to go bankrupt, in the turnaround of the business school. And that taught me so many things. Like, for example, most of the things we did in the business school, the customers really didn't care about. We we had rooms, we had uh, lunches. Really, all the customers wanted was find some good learning, teach us how to do it, and then help us to apply it. Mm -hmm. And all we did was really the middle middle one, which is, teach them some good stuff. We didn't do much front-end research and we didn't do much application. Mm. So I quit that and I started Pentacle. Uh, The idea was a virtual business school. We do the essence. It has the effect, but without the traditional form. That's the meaning of virtual. So we wanted to give the impact of learning, 
but without all the rooms and the buildings and the tutors. So mm. that's how I got from A to B. Okay, okay. So Pentacle, I think you started in 1994, I read. Is that yes, correct? yes, in the olden days. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, I mean, now when you say virtual, I mean, you think, oh, oh, of course, virtual reality, and you think, like, you know, it's, but how was virtual in 1994? What did, no, what so the idea of virtual is you want to have the impact, but without all the traditional baggage. That's okay, how it works okay. virtual. So, so that so, but people in those days would think that when I say it's a virtual business school, I mean it's nearly a business school. But that mm. was the meaning. Yeah, and virtual okay. reality, think about it, it, looks real, but it's a different engagement. But yeah. it's the same concept. So in those days, people didn't really know. Now, when you say virtual, they think it's going to be headset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You yeah. Know, we do use technology for mm. for delivering because one of the things we discovered was once people are global, if you want them to learn and apply, you have to bring them together often. Mm. So they can do social learning, but also learn new things. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with a small budget. But mm -hmm. you can you do to fly them. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we yeah. use technology as well. Okay, okay, excellent. So, so uh, in January, I gave a, a, a talk for uh, some business people, and uh, I do these talks about new technologies. And then I was researching new technologies, and I was like trying to give an update on new technologies. And I realized, like, wait a minute, too much happened. There's like, just too many things. Yes. And then I found your TED talk about this uh, midnight concept. Can you share a little bit what the, this concept is, the midnight concept? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the, in the TED talk, I just talk about one aspect, but it's really important. The, the central idea behind most of my work since really the 90s is that the real world is not so obvious to us. And actually it has changed, but it didn't give us any clues. So we're still doing the old behavior in a new world. So in the TED talk, it's about 12 minutes long. I try and explain that the pace of change has gone up. Everybody agrees. The scale, everything is global. Yeah, the scale has gone up. The number of people interacting has gone up. All of those things have gone up, but exponentially. Mm -hmm. At the same time, our ability to learn and change is pretty flat. Mm -hmm. So if you've lived in the past 50 years, you will have noticed you've gone from a world where you can work out what's coming next. You have good understanding of what's going on to what you described, which is there's so many technologies, where did those come from? And it's called flipping. And midnight is what I describe as the point where you go from where you can learn faster than the world is changing in the race to the world can run faster than you can learn. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that was the TED talk. The real model has uh, some other dimensions because I look at things like um, complexity versus ability to understand. It's done the same thing. Even compassion versus challenge mm -hmm. has the same thing. When I was growing up, your parents would challenge you. There was a bit of compassion, but it was tough love. Mm -hmm. Now, all the people are very compassionate. We mm -hmm. want to include everyone, and the challenge is very low. So mm -hmm. even that has flipped. Mm -hmm. So there are about half a dozen things which fundamentally have changed, which you may not notice, and so if you're running a business and you haven't realized, for example, that the pace of change is faster than the pace of learning, you may be spending three months putting together project budgets, mm. which are going to be obsolete before the ink is dry, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I always think about 2020 with all these budgets. You know, like I used to work for hotels back in the days in Starwood and they had this huge process of going doing the budget. And then like March 2020, okay, all those documents you can just throw out, you know. So. <laughs> But but so this TED I, for the listeners, I recommend you to watch the TED talk. You just search for Eddie Bank TED, and it comes up. One of the first ones. I think it's eleven years old. So yeah, I mean it, the, the speed of change has just increased. No. Yeah, I know. It's quite funny because I get people who say, "When I heard your TED talk, I thought it was prophetic, but now I realize you were actually talking about the past." Because the people, you know, again, if you don't realize the world has flipped. You hear some crazy guy going, hey, the world's flipped. What you're doing doesn't make any sense because that's not the world. And you go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you watch it happen. And you go, oh, gee, he said it. And then you go, when did he say it? 10 years ago? How did he know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so I've been thinking a lot lately, like uh, how you can future-proof yourself. And I changed yes. a little bit what I talk about. So Because I think, like you're saying, everything changes so fast. And my life changed dramatically in 2020, like it did for many. So with this midnight concept, what can one do to future-proof oneself? And what are kind of the competences you see that we need to future-proof ourselves? Oh, wow. Okay. 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 That's a tough one. <laughs> so one of the, the reasons why people get stuck in the world after midnight, before midnight, just take the, the one I described, which is change versus learning. Okay. That's the one I tend to present to people. The change is faster than the learning. 
Okay, one of the reasons you get stuck is because your learning doesn't necessarily go much faster. And there's a reason. Firstly, the brain is a pain in the backside because it burns energy 10 times faster than muscle. So thinking is quite a drain on a human being, okay? So if you can get out of thinking, that's good. That's number one. Number two, your, your design is very strange as a processing thinking animal. You have two brains, left and right. They do different things. We know if you cut the middle, the two halves don't know. Your heart has its own brain. You know, it's not your brain telling your heart to beat. Your stomach has its own brain. They're connected by the vagus nerve. You have five different processing centers minimum, and yet you feel like one person. Mm. Why is this important? Because that feeling like one person is crucial. It's got some people, times people would describe it as your ego, because it tells the story of you. Why should it tell the story of you? Because life for the past billions of years is tough. So if you're out hunting and gathering and a, a saber-tooth tiger comes towards you, that story has to be told to you. Say, hey, Oscar, you're a great guy. You're worth it. Run, run. The world needs you. Run. If mm. it didn't tell you how great you were, you just sit there and be eaten. So you have an ego which fools you into thinking how wonderful you are, which is good. But it has some downsides because it doesn't like, for example, news which says you're, not, you're a bit clueless. <laughs> so it has some tricks. If it sees something it already recognizes, it goes, I must be right. So as long as everybody in the old world is doing budgets and you're doing budgets, you think it's okay. Look at me, I'm doing the right thing. In fact, it works right the way across society. You know, if people are doing, I don't know, buying uh, uh, electric cars, everyone buys electric cars. Even if you, they think other people are buying electric cars, they buy electric cars because it's confirmation bias. On the other hand, if somebody says to you, those electric cars, bad news. All the batteries are mined by little children who are being poisoned because they're digging up cobalt in slave situation. Yeah. Your brain goes, no, that can't be true because your ego has to tell you that you're correct. It's called oh. cognitive dissonance. So just getting the signals of a new world doesn't accelerate learning as much as you think. Okay? So that's one of the headaches. So if you're serious about future-proofing, one of the things you have to do is be aware of that and get into the habit of going to look where no one else is looking and going to find things where your fear is. Mm. Because it's where your fear is, which is your blind spot, for what's going to get you next. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Now I'm thinking now, what comes to me is, I run a small business. Mm -hmm. I can pivot tomorrow. Yes. I can start, I, I'm actually doing a project in March that we came up with in December. Yes. But if I work, for example, let's say Ericsson in Sweden. I, I worked yes. a, a summer job in Ericsson when I was like 16. It's a huge organization. How do they deal with this? Because the small organizations can quickly shift, but the big ones, you know? Yeah, so, well, um, it's always good to look at the data. So since the 1970s, we did a couple of funny things in the 70s. We disconnected currencies from gold. Uh, I'll park that for a second because I'll come back to this because if you're future-proofing around business, you have to understand money. And most people don't understand money. I'm being rude. Okay, so mm. that's one thing we did. The other thing is, if you look at the data, you'll see that the 70s was when organic growth at the top end of businesses started to slow down. So in other words, a company like, uh, I don't know, Ericsson, who do you say it was? Ericsson? Yeah, yeah, Ericsson. It doesn't know. matter. A big yeah, company, yeah. before that, they were growing organically. Mm -hmm. They were making innovations. They were finding yeah. new customers. Yeah. Around you the can 70s, take uh, Electrolux in Sweden. It doesn't matter. They, yeah. Electrolux, they started to slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As it started to slow, the globalization started to kick in. So they realized that they don't just sell things organically. They can go out and start to acquire markets, buy mm -hmm. things elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So you'll see there was a change to M&A in the 1990s where M&A became basically a machine. So all of a sudden, you don't grow your own business. You get big enough that you start M&A. Start buying things. Mm -hmm. And then we got the growth of capitalists, global capital markets. So now you don't even have to use your own money to buy companies. So you can just acquire. And when mm -hmm. you start to acquire, you realize that there are three strategies you can take. The first strategy is to be dominant. If you're big, if you're especially globally big, there are no global monopoly <laughs> laws. So if you are a Google or a Microsoft or whatever it is, or even a mm -hmm. Zoom, Mm. You can dominate a market globally and nobody cannot break you up or stop you. Mm. 
Mm. So that's the goal. When you're dominant, you don't care. You, in fact, you don't even care about your customers because you just take their money. Put your hand in the pocket, take their money. If they complain, just take some more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like the Microsoft, second, Microsoft Teams. Yeah. So. Second root, root is die. Basically, you grow your business like your business a little bit. You look attractive. Look at me. I've got a nice business. And then one of the dominant guys comes and buys you, gives you a lot of money. You take the money, you buy your yacht, and you sit in the sun. Mm. So that's a good strategy. And a lot of Silicon Valley startups, that's the strategy. Mm. You build a startup, you make a story, somebody buys you, you sit on your yacht. Mm. The third strategy is evolve, which means, you know, what you're saying, let's come up with a new idea. Let's change. Let's make this happen. How about Mm. this? What do we Mm. do here? And that is a much more difficult strategy, uh, but it's only open. It's open to everybody because only a few of us are globally dominant. Mm. So if you don't have an evolved strategy, then you're just waiting to die or be bought up because unless you're huge, you can't dominate. Mm. So in terms of business um, uh, resilience going to the future, those are the three strategies. So I tend to try and help companies to think about how they evolve. Mm-hmm. But a large company, like which is not big enough to be the globally dominant one, they're in trouble because they mm. have to evolve. And mm. the problem is almost everything in their organization is getting in their own way. Mm-hmm. I'll explain. Mm. If the pace of change is bigger than the pace of learning, if I make a a rule in a business, like we must all see six customers, it's a good idea now, but because of the pace of change, by next week, it's obsolete. Mm. Now, most of these organizations, they have ways of adding rules, but they forget to put a sell-by date, so they never take it out, or they do it Mm. for a year. So if in six months' time, actually, we should see less customers, you don't change fast enough. So most of the people in the organization are acting rationally and sensibly for something which is already obsolete. Yeah. And so if you want them to evolve, you have to teach them how to deal with that, not just process-wise, but culturally and emotionally as an organization. Mm. Yeah. No, because, yeah, I mean, I worked in small organizations, I worked in big organizations before I started my my, uh, my own business. And at least big organizations, like you're saying, they have to put the rules in place, but then there's no, they cannot evolve because everyone yeah. is scared to do mistakes. Uh, Exactly. So when I work with big companies, I say to them, every single policy, every single KPI must have a sell by date. Like when you go to the supermarket, mm-hmm. you know, say this policy until February, then we review. Mm-hmm. You don't just say, oh, now we're going to even organization structures must have a sell by date. How long mm-hmm. do you think this will last? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I explain something called a forecast horizon. So if you imagine you're sitting standing on a mountain and you're looking to the future. When the world is changing slowly, you can see far into the future. Okay, so your forecast horizon is very far. If the world is bringing new things at you, new customers, new pot- potential, growth of technology, etc., then you can't see that far. So your forecast horizon is quite short. Mm. So if your forecast horizon is short, you have to have short execution and short sell-by dates. Mm. Mm. If it's long, which is very rare, then you can afford a longer period. Mm. Short execution. People make a mistake because they think you should be short term. No, 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 no. You still try and look as far as you can, but you try and execute short term. So Mm -hmm. an example I give is, if you've ever seen the construction of, I don't know, like a a service station by a a motorway, you know, old days, they would build the service station, the shops, the motel, the hotel, everything, and then they have a big opening. Mm -hmm. That's as if they have a long-term view. But if you have a a long-term view and short-term execution, you still plan to do all of those things, but you just build the service station first. You open mm, that one. Mm, then you build the shops. Then you open mm, that. Then you build the right. children's play. Then, then you open the hotel. So you break mm. the execution into what I call chunks. Mm, mm, mm. And yeah. if you're halfway through, the world has moved, you change your vision. Mm, yeah. So uh, that gives you resilience. That makes you future-proof. But it's a yeah. different mindset. I call yeah. it the 12 rules, 12 rules of thinking. That's one yeah. thinking. It's one of, it's, one it's of one your... my books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. You wrote, you've written like 10 books or so. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. No, that that really makes sense. And I actually pivot changed a little bit after COVID. That before I was working, I, I have a studies. I'm a certified in sports psychology, and in sports psychology, it's like uh, very goal oriented and all this. Mm-hmm. But I changed, so I have a twenty year kind of intention, and then quarterly quarterly projects. Like yeah. Yeah, because... that's right. Long term vision, short term execution, mm-hmm. and you can always execution. change your vision, mm-hmm. but you try to hold the vision because it holds something for you. And also, mm-hmm. as a human being happiness is a funny thing as a human being we like to be happy most of us Mm. um 
I remember when I finished my doctorate, I'd been working so hard towards that doctorate, I finished it. The thing about the doctorate is it's very funny. When you're on a normal course, the last day of the course, everybody goes out and celebrates. But if you're working on a doctorate, you finish it, and you're the only person who's interested in it. <laughs> Nobody else cares. No, no one cares. They don't care. No one reads so, the paper. So you find mm. them all, and they come and drink some beer with you. And you spend three years of your life working like a dog. And then the next day you're going, now what do I do? The, the <laughs> happiness lasted like maybe like two uh, hours, 22 minutes. Uh, uh, uh. So what you discover is that while you were working towards the doctorate, actually you were happy because you were working towards a vision. Uh, uh, yeah. So the vision is important because the vision is the basis of the happiness because when you progress towards what you want to achieve, it tends to make you happier. Mm, if you yeah, don't have yeah. a vision, it's quite hard to be happy. Um, mm. And it's the progress. It's not the achievement. People always mm. think it's the achievement. When I get to that, no. The achievement yeah. is not the secret. The secret is progress through difficulty. Yeah, That's progress to diff through difficulty. Yeah. No, my uh, teacher in mental training and sports psychology, he, he shared he was in the Olympics in the 80s with one of the Swedish athletes that, and he won a gold medal. And in the evening, they were supposed to go out and celebrate. And he was kind of going into a depression. Because he's been working so hard and he's like, now what? And now it's what? same with the doctor's thing that, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, it's interesting. Um, yeah, so <laughs> hybrid work. There's a lot of talk about, uh, <laughs> I know this is a topic that you're interested in. So, so, you know, there's this debate now, should we go back to the office? Should we allow people to work from home? And people are complaining, they want to work from home. My perspective, and then I want to hear your perspective. My perspective is that, culture creativity somehow you need to meet to build this but be productive you can be at home but that's i i don't know you run uh, these workshops with you said for the people from all over the world so what what are, what like for me something happened like i start doing a lot of uh, team uh, uh, seminars in 2020 when i moved back to sweden and then after like last year i started doing live again and for me mm -hmm. the live ones you know after you go for a coffee break you have lunch people yeah, talk they right. go to the you know, like people ha things happen when you meet. So what are your thoughts? Is the hybrid office here to stay? Is it good for companies? Or what do you think? Okay, so I think um, I, I, I always want to know what the problem is first before mm. I start even to look at solutions. Okay, um, I know most people like to buy solutions. So they read the newspaper, the newspaper tells them what the solutions are. I'm, I'm a bit strange. So I like to think about what's the problem. So what is the problem? I'll tell you the problem I had. As I was kicking off Pentacle Virtual Business School, my clients used to fly people to come on courses and they would come more often. Then the prices went up. The company's margins were less. We wanted to do continuous learning. So we wanted people to learn, apply, learn, apply, mm -hmm. not just come and do a big course. So short modules, three months. And so we had to come up with a way where they could learn and apply when they were not physically together. And at the same time, because of M&A, they... Companies were getting broader around the globe, around the town time zones. Mm. So my problem is, how do you fix that? How do you get adults, grown-ups, to be in a learning environment where they can do the coffee and laughing, get the social learning? Because grown-ups, they learn from each other, not from mm. the teacher. Mm. You're busy talking. They do that to each other and go, hey, did you see he's a crazy guy? <laughs> and you're, Oh, that's just like the, the, the product we shipped with two things. That's how the learning goes. Oh, okay, It's not yeah. what's on the screen. So um, sidebar conversations and so on. So I started thinking, how could I do that using technology? So this was in the early 90s. I started with something called CIX Interchange, where you type things. And that worked quite well. Um, but it was just typing stuff. It's a bit like I don't know, social media, just typing stuff. Mm -hmm. It didn't have emotional soul. So the next stage was I used something called Lotus Learning Space which was a technology which allowed people to have multiple conversations and put pictures and videos. Okay, so we started. It was not good enough. I wanted the emotional learning experience of higher quality than being in a classroom. Mm. That was my goal. That was my vision. So how to achieve that? I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out how to do it for a good, uh, almost 15 years, 10, 15 years, okay? Yeah. So when did you start to think about this? What, what, like in the 90s or when was it? Yeah, well, when I started the school, so nine, 1993 is when I started the school. And it was obvious. We ran a program for a company called Motorola. I don't even know whether they're still in business anymore. Wow. That was one of our first programs. And they had started bringing people from around the world. And so I said, look, we need to follow these people back. Okay, I explain. 
when you go on a course, when you go on a training, it's like a big wedding. Mm-hmm. It's good fun. Everyone's planned. There's biscuits, there's cakes. Hey, we drink the champagne. It's a wonderful time. But the wedding is not important. What is important? What is important is the marriage. What happens afterwards? Mm. So for me, my concept was learn, apply, learn, apply. Not just learn, 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 get some good things. You with me? So with the Motorola thing, they had to find a way to deliver that. So it was apparent that I needed a solution to this particular problem. And that's how I started. I know I'm coming a long way to your hybrid. Mm. Hybrid is the wrong problem. (laughs) Just uh, one thing. I really wish you could meet my teacher, uh, Lars-Erik Unestol. You two would have excellent conversations. Because in the 80s, he did research on, it was very trendy for Swedish companies to send all the executives on courses, on a free one-week course. And he did research six months after. What was the actual change? And the only <laughs> thing rem- they remembered was like, yeah, we had a nice dinner. It was like a exactly. nice hotel, but no actual change. Yeah. So it very much aligned with what you're saying. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's quite quite it's it's no it's a, a normal thing. If you don't apply, yeah, you need to apply. Yeah. So so I was looking for something, and I came across a, a thing called croquet, which then evolved in something called quack, which was an immersive environment. What does that mean? It means that you are in a space. The sound is good enough. And the visuals are good enough that if there are two of you, if I move something, you see it. So after a while, that brain with the ego I described is fooled into thinking we're in the same place. Mm-hmm. So with my team, uh, David Lomas uh, and uh, his programming team, we got an open version of that and we started to build. We made the sound very high quality so it's not tiring. There are little mm-hmm. things like that and three-dimensional. We stuck to very simple avatars because we realized that um, when people are together, they're they're usually looking at the work if they're working. And if they're not, they're busy listening to each other, you know. Um, So we started with that. And then we tried to say, well, what's the teaching experience? And because we were teaching and writing our own code, we'd go, right, okay, so we want people to have a breakout. What do we have to do to make them laugh when they're in their breakout? Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to have a back channel so they can chat about the tutor, so they can send private texts the tutor can't see. We should let them sit down together like they do in real life, and the sound should wrap around them so they can chat and they know nobody can hear, for mm-hmm. example. yeah. Don't send them to a separate room like you do with Zoom. They can see everybody. They can sort of hear. And if we must have a coffee area where... During the thing, we say, let's have a coffee area. Some people want to go to the... So we built this thing called Cube. Mm. And we built it as the ultimate learning experience. And now I come to your question about human versus... So there's a spectrum. If you 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 and I were together and we were just hanging out, we could eat food so we could taste. We would see each other. We could smell the food. Uh, we can touch it. We know where our bodies are. So they're like seven senses, which you have proprioception and so on. Um, we were trying to replace all seven senses, except maybe taste and smell. It's very difficult, those two. We're in this, in on Cube. We call it super reality. So on Cube, all the items look really old-fashioned. Because when you see a table, you have to know what the table does. And you know that. So we have tables, we have whiteboards, we have projector screens, you know? So it's not like a metaverse where they have all these blue colors and yellow, Mm. because when you go to the metaverse, you don't know what to press. You press something, it's actually a flower. You know what I mean? So we try to make as much like real life as possible so your brain can relax and you're not worried in your amygdala that something's coming to eat you because this is a new environment. Mm. So that's really important. Uh, And then... We try and cover all those things. So what we found is within 15 minutes, 7 to 15 minutes, people can relax and start to laugh. Yeah. Because but, the sound quality... But is it in virtual reality glasses? No, no, or no. Just, on it's the just screen. on the screen. On the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the yeah. face, it's hot. Mm. You're now making it uncomfortable. Yeah, how are you going to do it for a couple of hours? Yeah. Plus, yeah. you can't mm. see your hands. Therefore, mm. you can't manipulate your keyboards. Mm. Okay? Plus, 40% of people with the headsets... They feel sick. They want to throw up. (laughs) So you're busy teaching. Say, the most important thing is you must make sure that you have a financial... (laughs) So the headset stuff is really interesting. But you see how much work they put in to try to make sure it's all in line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So it's a silly thing. And it also makes it very expensive. Yeah, so yeah. No, no headsets. We we played with headsets for a while on a different project and we realized it's not a good okay. Even the so, good headsets, there's yeah. some people who throw up. So, so now when you teach, you 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 actually use this cube system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. been doing that for since 2010. So oh, almost, nice. uh, almost yeah. 12 years. Yeah. I spend most of my time. So we we have classrooms, but then we have offices. Then we each student will get their own study where mm. they can go. They can meet other students. They can have tutorials. So we have a campus for the client or for the course mm. where you can find everyone. And because it's running 24-7, I could just look at my list and go, is Oscar there? Mm. Oscar, have you got two minutes? And we could meet. Mm. And you could say, hey, look, this is what I'm working on. Look at this spreadsheet. Look at this PowerPoint. I could draw on a whiteboard. Uh, and we could just get, like we do in real life. In fact, better yeah. than an office. Because in an office, it takes more than eight seconds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so there's basically the picture behind you uh, on your yeah, screen. Yeah, so this is, is a campus. This is a typical campus behind me. Um, yeah. So um, um, we have so different the, rooms, offices, conference rooms, yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, I can yeah. show you later if, if you, yeah, if you yeah. want to. Um, uh, yeah, when I was researching this uh, for this podcast, I, I tried to enter the queue, but I have a Mac, and uh, it, it was not allowed on Mac now. But I, oh, nice. There's some people. You see the avatars? Very simple. Mm. What we learned was that he, I introverts... think he's Swedish. That guy, Alex yeah. Lennarsson. <laughs> Swedish name. <laughs> so if, it's really interesting because we learned that introverts hate to have avatars, hate to see themselves on screen. I'll explain a bit about that. Um, so it's bad enough for normal people because sheep and cows have their eyes on the side because they get eaten. Human beings have their eyes at the front mm. because we eat other people. So when you're on a team's call with 12 faces, you're looking at 12 predators. That's why you get so tired because your old crocodile brain mm. is panicking. Mm. Mm. Introverts hate seeing themselves. Then you try and make them make an avatar of themselves. They hate that more. And then we discovered things like, imagine that I was a little bit too tubby or I was worried about my weight. And you say, make an avatar of yourself, Eddie. Do I make a fat avatar or do I make a thin avatar? If I make a fat avatar, then I'm confessing that I know I'm fat. And if I make a thin avatar, I'm worried people are laughing at me. So human-shaped avatars is a really bad idea uh... unless you're a good-looking, very confident person. And the good-looking, confident people never occurs to them the problem they create for the rest of the world. Uh, uh. So we use these very, very simple uh, avatars, square head. Um, some people put their pictures on them. Yeah, I just have a smiley. Your name is above your head, so you always know. Your company logo is on your chest, so you know who you are. So if it's an in-company thing, you know everyone who's there, who the tutors are, and so on. And you have full autonomy. You can walk, you can mm. talk, you can move things, you can hear. So we're replacing all those seven senses. Okay, the reason I'm telling you all of that is because that's how I came into it. Mm. So to me, hybrid makes no sense because it doesn't matter anywhere, anyway, where people are. Because what's interesting is what they do together, how they learn together, if they mm. laugh together. if they move. So that's how I came into it. Everyone else came in with 2020. Mm, and yeah. 2020 was funny because the CIOs who had been buying all the software, suddenly they used it. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and they were surprised they worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you were ahead of your time. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so they bought Teams, they bought Zoom, they bought Mural, all those things. And they were yeah. The problem with those things is they're either, like we are doing now, going to have the two dimensions, just seeing and and not even stereo sound, but mono sound, mm. or typing. It's not a human experience. Mm. So I completely agree with you. That is a really horrible experience compared to being together, eating, and so on. Mm. But being together and eating and so on can be great if the people are nice. But it can also be pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, if you're an introvert, especially. Correct. You got it. And one of the things we learned was uh, when we experimented with people-shaped avatars, if the avatar looks like your geography teacher you hated and you were all in a room, you never went to sit with that person. <laughs> so mm. in real life, that is going on. So there are bad things in real life which we can fix by being virtual. Like the boss isn't overly dominant because he's just another avatar. Mm. Um, there's no tension between uh, tall, short, male, female, all that diversity nonsense which we hear about. Mm. You don't have to worry about it because the avatars take care of it. You're just mm. dealing with the essence of the person. Mm. You know, they'll tell you, oh, biases. But no, 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 it's very simple. Mm. So, so there are things which are better 
on Cube than in real life. It solves a lot of the real life problems. But I think eating, laughing, uh, and having physical experiences like going bowling, you will never beat those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. beat those. Yeah. So mm. let's go back to hybrid work. If it's hybrid work, mm. hybrid is the wrong thing. See, what's mm. happened is, this again is old world thinking. Hybrid means it's either A or B. Mm. So the assumption is we must work together. In order yeah. to work together, we must be able to um, uh, uh, share what we're working on. Therefore, we must all be in the office. Mm. We must work together. Therefore, we must be more productive. Therefore, we must be at home. Are you with me? So they treat it as if it's a conflict. It's like work-life balance. You want to have a happy home, so mm. you try to keep your spouse happy, so you spend more time at home. You want to have a happy home, so you try to make more money, so you spend more time at work. It's a conflict. Mm. But none of those are conflicts. It's just bad assumptions. Think about the work-life balance. You want to have a happy home, you must keep your spouse happy. That's probably true. But spending time at home doesn't necessarily mean you keep your spouse happy. It's what you do when you're at home. Mm. Are you a nice person? Are you a horrible person? Spending more time at work doesn't necessarily improve the money you make. It's brown mm. your boss. <laughs> mm. So it's a false uh, yeah. dilemma. Uh -huh. Hybrid is a false dilemma. Yeah. It, it, it's very popular, but it's the wrong nonsensical solution to a non-existent problem. Mm. The problem is how do we get people to feel they're together all the time, to be able to be unlimited all the time? I can do that with Q, but because they keep trying to do it using just vision and sound and a few typed PowerPoints, they can't achieve it. Mm. Because if you want to achieve it, you have to emulate the human experience. Mm. Yeah. Now, I mean, what, what happens now, at least in Sweden, is that you're like, oh, you can work from home two, three days a week. And then some go to work on Tuesday and some work at home. And then they have a Zoom meeting and half are sitting at home and half are sitting in the office. And, you know, so Crazy. it should be either or, no? Like, they should use Cube from home and then come to oh, the Cube office. all the time. And... I mean, I, I, if I can find it, I have a picture of a group of people sitting around the table, physically all of them in the same place all with Cube open on their laptops. They're talking, but they're typing and putting all the documents in front of them. Mm. So when they are no longer together, they still have access because Cube is a, it's a, it's a three dimensional environment. It's like your second office, digital mm. twin. Mm. Excuse me. So, so you don't, don't even think about the technology. Mm. It's like, if I'm going to write a Word document, I work on Word. If I'm going to be in the office where we plan this project, we log into the Cube cubicle, where the project is, all of us, and we work there. We put our plans on the wall. We talk about it. It's all there. So mm -hmm. it's in one place. So cool. that's why I say it's non the problem. The problem is not the problem they think it is, and the solution mm. is not the solution they think it is, because mm. they imagine it's about either or. That's mm. old world thinking. New mm. world thinking is and. It's in my mm. book, Tools for mm. the New World. Mm. Always and integrated solutions, not mm. either or solutions. Mm. So I, I watch the hybrid discussions, and I've given up on commenting on them now because. Mm. It's now a religion. Um, some mm. people want it. Some people don't want it. Nobody has, everyone mm. stopped thinking. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, uh, from, what I, from what I, when I hear you talking and you share your story, you did your PhD and then you started, start studying other things. I see curiosity, a lot of curiosity, which yes. is uh, what we need in these days. So, for me, like creativity, if you're as an individual creative and then, Innovation. What is your definition of creativity and innovation? What is the? How can okay. you become more so creative? Innovation is innovate? easier than creativity. Innovation is the process of turning sometimes new ideas into benefits or money. That's how I define it. Mm. So innovation is the process of turning sometimes new ideas into benefits or money. Creativity is, I think, generating these new ideas adapting old ideas to look new it's all those different elements mm. i think that's what the creativity is mm. okay so they're connected but not directly the innovation mm. process has an outcome the creativity process also has an outcome but it might not be something which you can eat or live or makes you laugh mm -hmm. okay yeah uh evolution versus transformation uh like you can evolve or you can completely transform yeah so <laughs> So evolution is uh, evolution is a change process. It tends to be quite slow. Um, 
when you look at change in the old world, when you could learn fast and the world was changing, okay, um, most of the problems which came along, you could recognize them. You say, oh, I know, I can see, it makes sense to me. And then you would have to act on the problem. You'll be able to establish what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Mm. Yeah. I call that type of change painting by numbers change. You know what to do, you know how to do it. It's like those books we used to draw mm. Okay? Mm. with the numbers one, one, mm. one is mm. blue. Okay. Mm. As you move to our new world, which changes faster than you can learn, you now find three other types of change. Sometimes you know what to do, you don't know how to do it. Sometimes you know how to do it, but you're not sure what the outcome will be. Sometimes you don't know what to do or how to do it, but you know it should be done immediately, like in 2020 for you. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there's three different types. The third one, fourth one I call being lost in the fog. What do I do? I don't know. I can't see where I'm going. Okay? Mm-hmm. So... That is change. And a lot of evolution is more about change. It's about that type of process. Mm. Um, evolution works. Huh. It works on a dynamic front. Um, the best way to understand change and how change gradually moves you forward is um, there's a, a joke about the um, the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, where she meets Alice and they're trying to go somewhere and they start running. And as they run, they stay in the same place. Mm. And, and the queen's shouting, faster, faster. And Alice is saying, but we've been running so fast and we're still in the same place. And the queen says, yes, it takes all the running you can do to stay in the same place. Uh-huh. That's evolution. Mm. Evolution is a process where with the different elements around you, you continue to survive. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah not yeah. that you're going somewhere else. Okay. Mm. But sometimes the evolution is not enough and the change is quite dramatic. So then you have to transform. And that's a dangerous thing because evolution is safe because you're in a constrained environment. Transformation Mm -hmm. is a leap of faith almost. So transformation is a very special situation. People use it all the time as if it's just change. But I always say you don't go to a caterpillar for flying lessons. Butterflies fly, caterpillars don't. Caterpillar KPIs, eat leaves. (laughs) Butterfly KPIs, fly and look nice. They're not the same. To go from a caterpillar to a butterfly, you must keep eating and keep the caterpillar alive. You then have to guess at what it means to be a butterfly. You have to start building the cocoon. As you build the cocoon, you start to learn more about being a butterfly. Then you have to start dropping things which the caterpillar does, building some of the new things the butterfly does, learning more. So now you understand where you're going. Vision, chunking, we talked about with the and then you can build up that transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three parallel change processes, not just one. Yeah. So, so for me, 2018, 2019, I was kind of evolving. And then 2020, transformation. Correct. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a different process. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I believe you wear a lot of hats. Like you were involved in many different projects. Like, I've done, I'm very old. I've done everything. Yeah, exactly. So I like to wear many different hats as well. I start projects here and there. And sometimes it's difficult because you want all the projects to grow. So what are your recommendations for those creatives that like starts lots of different projects and wear many hats? How many hats do you wear now? Oh, God. I, I you haven't even counted. I don't count. So, so first trick, if you're very creative, is you have to realize that inside your head, there is basically a tyrant because when you're a creative person you have an idea and the idea takes you over it yeah. possesses you yeah okay I definitely you, you can't do anything until this idea has been okay so there's a tyrant in your head so my first piece of advice is if you're creative always plan tomorrow today mm-hmm. because if you don't plan tomorrow today then when tomorrow comes and you're doing something and the tyrant takes over it just destroys everything else which is going on around you so you have to know what you're planning to do. Leave some holes, maybe half an hour here, there for the tyrant, but plan tomorrow today. A lot of creative people don't like to plan too much. Mm, it's a disaster. Yeah, That's yeah. number one. Uh, number two is um, you're not the only person who's going to have the best ideas because that process of creativity we talked about is also new ideas or adaptations of old ideas. So it's worth being able to hear what other people say. Mm-hmm. And often when that tyrant is taken over and you're in creative mode, you don't hear what people say. Mm-hmm. I talk about, I have a model. I, all the investment for UK um, 
uh, Innovate UK. So all the big tech investment is based on one of my models called the Sparks model. And I try and explain there are what we call push ideas, ideas which come out of your head and then you try and get people to do it. And they are pull ideas. So the difference would be a pull idea would be you go skiing, you fall over, you might break your leg because your leg was tied with a piece of rope to a bit of wood. So somebody went, hey, let's make a thing which comes off. That's a pull idea. There's a problem and the problem demands a solution. Mm. Then there are push ideas. Hey, why don't we make some new fashions? I saw a fashion show this recently and they were walking along. They were wearing these dresses, but the dress was at an angle. It's just an idea. It, it, it's not connected to anything. There's no pull to it. So push and pull. And you can have things which are about human, the human needs, or you can have things which are about technology improvements. So it's like a two by two, okay? So once you understood that, you realize that push ideas, which come out of your head, are great, whether they're for humans or technology, but the problem is they bump into the fact that nobody wants them, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay? Because effectively it's come out of your head, you don't know if there's a need. Mm-hmm. Pull ideas definitely need a solution, but they bump into the problem that there might not be the technology to support it, which is what you were saying. I'd like to look at the technologies. I, there were so many, I did not know what to do. Mm-hmm. So, so the two of them have different headaches. And once you understand that model and you're a creative person, you know where you are. So if you're coming out of your head early on, go and talk to people who might live mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. You know I mean? Go and look for technologies which might support it. If it's coming from a need and you're trying to solve a need, then early on, go and look for people who might help you. Early on, go and look for technologies which might support it. Yeah. Don't wait and build the idea and try and raise funds and then you discover yeah. you can do it. So those yeah. would be my two pieces of advice. Yeah, that, that's great, actually. And that's in the book, in your book? It's in one of my books. I think it's in Who Killed the Spark? Yeah, yeah okay. I'll, I'll buy that one uh, because that's a, that's a nice, uh, nice idea, nice way of framing it. So uh, you have time a little bit more? Or, yeah, I mean, Susan yeah. knows that these things normally overrun. So she's usually gives me about extra 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> the, there's two things that left on my list. And one is uh, like for many years now, they've been talking about AI, artificial intelligence will take 40% of the jobs, blah, blah, blah. And I was, I've been sharing this in my keynotes about AI and how many jobs will be lost, blah, blah, blah. But now we chat GBT, third version being launched in November. And I played a little bit with this. And now it really seems that this has potential to actually disrupt a lot of things. So what are your thoughts on AI and ChatGPT and these, these tools? Yeah, so I mean, when I was doing engineering, we didn't call it AI, um, but, but basically computer-based systems which can learn. Um, we've been playing with those for a long time. Um, so we understand that they can work, they work really well, but they're also very dependent on the data sets. Mm. And that jumps me straight to chat GPT. So I live in a country called the UK. And one of our big scandals at the moment is it turns out that our current prime minister uh, run a hedge fund and has lots of money, which is invested in one of the companies which provided the vaccines. So it's a big scandal. You know, it's mm. like the prime minister who's been pushing this stuff was getting really rich. Okay. So the first question I asked ChatGPT was I said, how much money has Rishi Sunak made from uh, uh, vaccines? Yeah. ChatGPT quite happily told me, Rishi Sunak hasn't made any money from vaccines. So this is the whole thing about AI and data sets and discernment. And what I said earlier about go where the fear is, look for the very, 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 very early faint signals. Because by the time everybody knows something, there's no money to be made. You don't make money by doing what everyone else is doing. The margins are eroded. You have to make money by doing something special or better or newer or different, and then growing it at scale with good margins in terms of the cost. That's how you do it. So ChatGPT, being an AI system, it's trawling the middle data, not the edges. It's mm-hmm. not going to give you an edge answer. Mm-hmm. It might give you a stimulus for you to be creative, to look for the edge, but AI and ChatGPT, the, the way the structures are built, it's, it's, it's the data sets. And if you ask it to speculate, it will struggle to see light signals. Okay. It, go, and, go and read how, how it works, basically, how, how you build neural networks, mm. and then you'll understand. Mm. So, so ChatGPT will suffer from garbage in, garbage out. Mm. It's really slick. It's nice to have a voice and all the rest of it. It's a great toy. Um, when I was growing up, we used to have these little metal robots 
and they'll go, surrender, surrender. And it's just a very sophisticated version of one of those robots. Far more interesting is the way in which self-driving car architecture works. So to run a self-driving car, you need like six systems, LiDAR, radar, et cetera, to look high, far, close, heat, and so on and so forth. So if you apply that to jobs, like a CEO's job, what does the CEO do? They look at the future, they see opportunities. Literally, you could use the same six systems and you could then say, well, this is the CEO's job. This is what a self-driving CEO would look like. Then you can collect the data which a typical CEO would be collecting. And then you could feed that data into the AI and then you could replace the chief executive quite easily with AI. I think you can replace a chief executive more easily with AI than you can a worker. Interesting. But the so workers the, the will get replaced because they have CEO. no power. Uh-huh. <laughs> the CEO's job is so easy now. Yeah. It's so easy. You know, yeah. get me 20 acquisition targets. Yeah. You know, it's so easy. Uh, interesting. And, and the data is available. The consultants provide them with the data. So the model, you literally take a self-driving car model, apply it to a CEO's job. They, they're obsolete. Mm. They're absolutely obsolete. Interesting. I think what you are doing will not be obsolete. Uh, learning and uh, these all these topics that you're talking about. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to talk about was fear of constraint. That I understand you were inspired by Goal and uh, what's his name, the Israeli guy, Eliot Goldrat. Eli yeah, Goldrat. Yeah. Eli yes. Goldrat. Yeah, I read his book a couple of years ago and I tried to use it as well. But so, how would you apply fear of constraint? First, I was thinking as an individual, but if you want, you can share. How would you apply fear of constraint for the pandemic? I did actually. Yeah, so three constraints. Um, so I met Eli Goldratt when I was quite a young tutor. He he was amazing because he could think, and um, in his theory of constraints, he, he some of the ideas are very very powerful. Like never reality is reality. You know, I drop this pen. It doesn't matter what you believe it's going to fall. Mm-hmm. If you have a system, it doesn't matter what you believe. If it has a constraint, you can't go faster than the constraint. It, it's impossible. So it was some really good physics about about the management world Mm. yeah so that was really useful so the reason i'm saying things i plan tomorrow today is because that's from theory of constraints you know work out what you're going to do get a constraint then subordinate everything else to it Mm. okay if you don't know what you're going to do you're going to be in a mess so that was it one of the methods he used uh was something called effect cause effect where he was trying to build if cause effect models i then adapted them i call them bubble diagrams Mm. now let me explain why they're useful so Normally, when you start a business school, you've had, in fact, when you start a university, you run the university for about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Some of the alumni give money back to the university. Then they die. Then they leave millions to the university. So places like Harvard and stuff, they're worth trillions because all their alumni have died and given them trillions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then they can do research. They can do pointless research because it doesn't cost them any money because they're so rich. When I started Pentacle, I wanted to do research really fast. I had no money. So I went to potential alumni and said, will you die and leave me your money? And they said, no, don't be silly. (laughs) So so I had to come up with a fast way of building research. So I used Goldratt's method and I built upon it in this bubble diagram. So most research is what's called incidence research. We interviewed 5,000 people on COVID and we concluded that, uh, I don't know, COVID happens to taller people. That's incidence research or whatever it is. Okay. No, actually, that's, that's more correlation research. We interviewed 5,000 people, and there's 5,000 people, 4,000 said, yes, COVID is left-handed, whatever it is, okay? Yeah. Then there is correlation research. Most of the people who said COVID was left-handed are tall, <laughs> okay? Those two types of research, you'll find them everywhere in all the newspapers. You get good headlines, but they don't tell you anything. They don't answer the question, what should I do about it? Mm. doesn't answer the question. doesn't even answer the question, what's really going wrong, or going on? Because correlation works like this. Every time the daffodils start to grow, the birds start to sing. So they correlate. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have correlation, it's because it has a common cause. So it's because it's spring and the sun is out. Mm-hmm. It's not the daffodils exactly. making the birds sing. Are you with me? Yeah, so you yeah, see yeah. it everywhere and it's just noise. It's just confusing you from reality. The reality is the sun has come out in spring. Incidence research isn't useful because... You can only interview people who are there. 
So like after COVID, they said, how are people confident about the economy recovering after lockdowns? Okay. So you interview 100 people and they go, oh, I'm not very confident. But 60% of them say, I'm confident. Next week, you interview them again. Now, 70% say they're confident. Do you know why? Because the 30% who said they're not confident have gone bankrupt. So you couldn't uh, interview them the second time. Uh, <laughs> you know I me? Mean? So incidents research, you'll see it everywhere, published everywhere, meaningless. No root cause. The modern word for it would be misinformation. Mm -hmm. A pointless thing. Okay? So causality is what you're after. What makes it happen? And what you discover is all the simple causalities have been solved. So all that's left in our lives are complex interdependent complexities. So you ask me about large companies trying to grow or adapt. So they say, we're not selling enough. So they ask the marketing guy, why are we not selling? We're not doing good enough marketing. You ask the manufacturing guy, it's because our products are too, too big. You ask the finance guy, they're all too expensive. So they give you three different reasons. Now, if you don't understand it, you think you have to select between one of those three reasons. That's old world thinking, either or thinking. No, 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 integrative and thinking. Actually, they could all three be right. All three could be right. It could be multiple causal. In fact, all the real problems are multi-causal. So mm -hmm. you go, if it's true that our products are too big, what would we expect to see? Well, nobody can fit our product into their house. Is that true? Yes. If it's too expensive, what will we find? Only rich people buy it. Is that true? No, that one's wrong. So what you do with the bubble diagram is you test what you expect and also what should never happen in order to tease out the causality map. And that is how I applied it to building all the stuff which I teach, even the Sparks map comes from a bubble diagram. I also applied it in COVID and that's why I got so furious because I went, okay, what's the problem? Some people are really vulnerable to this disease. Um, we have a virus which we haven't fully understood how to deal with. Um, I, I can't remember what the third one was. And I started to look, well, why are some people vulnerable? Well, it's because they are have reduced the immune systems. Why is that? Because they're older. Mm. Why is that? Because they're overweight. Why is that? Because the vitamin. Uh, and so I built a bubble uh, diagram. And from that, you could see the solution says, find the people who are vulnerable, put them in a bubble, maybe book some hotels, put them in the hotel, look after them carefully. Okay. Take the others, make them work hard, use the money to feed the people in the hotels, mm, mm, mm. you know, around the research. Don't just go one route. We all went vaccines. That's the only method. Try multiple routes because we know the goal. We don't know the method. It's mm. called a quest. It's the other type of change where you know the goal, you don't know the method. So you act like the historic King, King Arthur. You send the knights to look everywhere in the realm for the Holy Grail. So we try multiple things. And I was watching the world just go, this is the solution. I'm going, that's not right. That's dumb. You know? Mm. So my bubble diagram was in front of me on how we should resolve this issue. And I was shouting, and every time I said anything, people would just react to me emotionally. And go, oh, what you don't you know this is important? Yes, I do. That's why I'm complaining, because it's really important, mm -hmm. and we must really look after people. Oh, if you're suggesting something else. So it was quite interesting. But I know why they did that, because as I said, the ego, strange thing, yeah. Eddie brings different idea, cognitive dissonance. Mm. I understand also the fear with the tiger coming at you, switches off your brain so you can't think so yeah, yeah. you can actually use those yeah i i wish you could have presented to the prime minister at the time of the uk or uh, so. i did write to people they just yeah. all ignored yeah. me <laughs> <laughs> and then now a couple of years later i hope they're like oops maybe he was right at the end of the day so anyway we shall so, see we shall yeah. see so my last question to you uh if you had a magic wand and you had like one hour with everyone on this planet and you could teach them something what, what yeah. would you teach them two can I, i'll teach them two things yeah yeah the first thing i teach them was how to know what's not true because at the moment what happens is one of the reasons people get into a mess with the cognitive dissonance is they look for trusted sources and they absorb everything which they're told and once you have one idea if you get a similar idea, you get cognitive bias, and then you mm. can't see what's on. Mm. So I would teach them, this is how you find out from anything which anyone tells you whether it's true or not. You don't have to trust the person. You can interrogate the data. Method number one, baby method. Everyone can do this because you did it once upon a time. When a baby sees something, what do they do? They see it, first sense, touch it, second sense, taste it, third sense, bite it, fourth sense. 
They use multiple senses. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says to you, the, the housing market is rising, you go, okay, so show me the numbers. Yes, look, it's gone from 12 to 15. Then you go to the local estate agent and you say to them, are you getting really busy? And they say, no, it's very quiet here. Mm -hmm. That's the second sense. Are you with me? So you mm -hmm. go, the housing price is probably not rising. Mm -hmm. Okay. And people say, it's anecdotal. Yeah, probably. But all you need is one data point to start to question the validity mm -hmm. of a blanket statement. Mm -hmm. So, so baby method away. is really important. It's go away from logic. propaganda and opinions Correct. to facts. And it stops you getting dragged into propaganda and reading headlines. So that's baby method. Just use mm. two or three different methods. If mm. you, okay, maybe go to that. Talk to your friends. Are you changing moving house? Use three or four different methods mm. to validate it. Second method, uh, it's called nomological baby method. The second method is prediction. And everyone can do this. Well, in Sweden, we're getting lots and lots of immigrants coming. So I predict that what will happen is that we'll be having riots on Friday. Okay, so so they told you this is going to get bad. You go, okay, Friday. So you write down lots of chaos Friday. You write in your diary. You must write it down because otherwise you lie to yourself. Whatever they said, predict what will happen, predict the outcome, write it down in your diary in a week's time. Then wait a week. Okay, we should be having some riots. Are there riots outside? Let's see. No riots. That was nonsense. Excuse <laughs> me. So you use prediction to find out what you've been told, whether it was true or not, then you can discard it from your brain. If you keep nonsense in your brain, along with good stuff, it's very difficult to have a good outcome because you're always fighting yourself. Uh, the third method, of course, is scientific method, which nobody can use. Even the scientists can't use it. I mean, we now know that 92% of peer reviewed uh, research is just nonsense, okay? So let's park that one for now. <laughs> uh, then the fourth one is the Sherlock Holmes method. So there's a story where um, Sherlock Holmes is invited in. There's been a burglary. The people in the house say that the gypsies came and stole the thing, but there's a dog and the dog didn't bark. And Sherlock Holmes says, oh, it's very curious the dog didn't bark. In other words, someone in the house did the burglary. Mm. So you're looking for what shouldn't be there. So if they're telling you, like with, with uh, climate change, I'll tell you about climate change and probably everyone will hate me. I I I'm an, I love the planet. I, my mom is a, an environmentalist. She was at Stockholm in in, uh, in uh, 80, eight, the 80s conference, 82 conference with Barbara Ward. All my life, I love it. I live in the countryside. I love trees, everything else. I want the world to work. So everyone's telling me, and I wasn't paying attention, that clever people are working on this problem, trying to solve it. Solve the climate problem. It's all about CO2, etc. And I went, oh, crazy people, yeah. So I never paid attention until I had to think about it. I had, to, I was selling cube to uh, the Scottish government, and I was drawing a, a diagram to show how they could save travel, travel. Okay, so I was writing. So I drew a little house, a car, a train, a coffee shop, and a house. And it suddenly dawned on me that the whole place was space heated. You know, the heat the air. That's what we do. Uh, I don't know whether you do that in Sweden. Heat the air. So I went. I wonder what that's about. I wonder what that's about. So. Um, I thought, how, how much carbon does space heating generate? Do you know as a percentage? No, nobody mm -hmm. knows. Because whenever you see any of those pie charts, they don't tell you why the CO2 was produced. They tell you who produced the CO2. It's a blame chart. It's not a causality chart so we can fix the problem. Let's go look at China, look at England, US. Mm -hmm. So I had to dig and I found how much CO2, and it's between 10 and 15%, something like that, for heating. Okay, the air which goes out the window, and and that thing, the person is not in the house, they're not in the car, they're not in the train, they're only mm. in one place, huh? Mm. So I thought ah, I go skiing. We're out of doors all day. We don't use any carbon because we're well dressed. So why would we need to heat the air? Mm. So that's why I have this jacket with the light. It's a heated jacket. The room's mm. not heated. Excuse mm. me. So I thought in an afternoon, I have solved. What I've been told all these clever scientists and Greta are doing. I did it in less than an afternoon. So at that point, I go, Sherlock Holmes method, they're not trying to solve this. Uh, if they were trying to solve it, they would have solved it. Uh, we'd, we'd hit 10% overnight just by telling people this. And that's like three times the Paris climate uh, uh, accords, which are going to take till 2030. So from my point of view, we would save the planet now. Uh, 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 and anyway, the thing which will kill us before that is plastic. Uh, uh, <laughs> so so uh. that would be the, the and then the last method of course is uh, the scientific method I'm sorry the nature method mm -hmm. somebody tells you something you look at nature so they tell you oh 
people are now becoming more intelligent because they're eating better. I'm just making it up. Mm. You look at nature and go, do the animals who eat better, are they smarter? You know, et cetera. Mm. So if it doesn't happen in nature, then probability is what they're saying is not true because nature has been solving problems for billions of years. Mm. So mm. If I had the world stage, that is the seven minute pitch I would do. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. That was, uh, that was really nice. What, what was your online uh, name again? So on Twitter, I'm at Eddie Obeng. Yeah, and on yeah. LinkedIn, if you just look for Professor Eddie Obeng, yeah, yeah. the website is ediobeng.com and mm. Cube is where you really want to go. That's cube.cc. Cube.cc. Okay. And register. I do like a doctor's in from time to time. So I'll often be in the room and you can just come and hang out and we'll talk. Okay. Excellent. So thank you so much for this. It was lovely talking to you. Really interesting. I love all these things that you're sharing. So thank you so for taking the time. Thank you very much, Oscar. Thanks. Thank you. Wow, wasn't that a fun episode? It was an honor to speak to a rock star, the rock star of business education. So Professor Eddie really delivered. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, yeah, like I said in the introduction, I will listen to this episode several times and I recommend you to do the same. Also, check out his TED Talk. Just search for Eddie O'Bang and I think it's the first one that comes up. Uh, he also has a couple of other videos on YouTube that are interesting. So watch the TED Talk and a couple of other of episodes as well. And once you've done that, you come back to this episode and you listen to it again because it's repetition is the mother of skill so as discussed i am pivoting more and more so strategic tech coaching toolbox will be how you can future proof yourself it's about those competences that will be needed in this crazy rapid changing world and yeah we have a couple of tools in that toolbox so to learn more about this you can go to strategictechcoaching.com or maybe youtube i have a couple of videos on youtube just search for the YouTube channel Strategic Tech Coaching. Also, you can follow the journey on how I'm growing this brand on Strategic Tech Coaching on Instagram. And uh, yeah, if you need a keynote speaker, Professor Eddie is available and also me. And yeah, I hope to see you somewhere in the world. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast with your host, Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.